Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news podcast. And please don't forget, there's a donate button at the top of the website. And if you're listening on a podcast, it would be nice if you went down to the very bottom or wherever reviews on whatever platform you're listening on are and, and leave a review. Of course, if you like what we're, what we're doing, it'd be nice if you left a good review. So this is the last segment of a series we've been doing on the report titled From Global Pandemic to Prosperity for All, Avoiding Another Lost Decade. That's produced by the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, and this is its 2020 report. And now joining us from Geneva to continue our conversation is the principal author of the report, Richard Kozel-Wright. He's the Director, Division of Globalization and Development Strategies at UNCTAD, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. There's a lot of words going on here. He's the author of Transforming Economies, Making Industrial Policy Work for Growth, Jobs, and Development. Thanks for joining me, Richard. Nice to be back, Paul. We love acronyms in the United Nations. That's not about problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should just stick with the UNCTAD, but I keep I have to explain what UNCTAD is at any rate. Uh, so if you if you're listening and you ha- this you're just joining us, it probably would be good to go back and uh, start from the first part of the series as we work our way through the report because we're now t- at the end and we're going to start talking about solutions. And the section's titled The Great Escape. Uh, There's a couple of parts to it. But the theme is Embrace Bold Ideas. So, Richard, start with that. What what are the bold ideas presented in the report about what should be done about the current crisis? And just to add a little context, uh, just before this chapter, you ended the previous section with this, the economic damages from rigging the rules of the game are not the end of the problem. The concentration of economic power is politically corrosive. National constitutions instruct legislatures to make and enforce the same rules for everyone, whether operating within or without a corporation. The response to the global financial crisis suggested otherwise. Banks were bailed out and austerity hit jobs, wages, public services, while financial asset holders made further gains from the recovery. So, Richard, when you make the proposals of what should be done, obviously you're saying, well, let's not do that. Uh, because pre-pandemic, as, as you've argued in the course of our conversations, and as you said in the report, pre-pandemic, the global economy was already, uh, I don't know if you could say crisis is the problem, but 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 on the verge of one because of the enormous gap, uh, growing gap in incomes and the enormous growth in inequality. Um, so what, sh- what should be done? You know, what we argued was that as a result of this failure to deal properly with the aftermath of the global financial crisis, you know, we had this set of pre-existing conditions that that were there before COVID struck, but have been in many respects worsened and exaggerated by by the current crisis. So you know this is and this is the the, the obvious ones. I mean, inequality, as you mentioned, is is the one that uh, people obviously talk about a lot. Um, the but the high very high levels of debt, not just public debt, but private. Debt and, and debt of households and students and, and, and corporations, um, declining public services, very very weak 
public investment uh, across most of the developed world, but also private investment has been has been pretty um, uh, static for a lot of this period. And and behind this this kind of growing power of uh, of the corporate sector. I mean, not just finance, but with finance somehow t- being typical of this kind of world of rent-seeking behavior, uh, of, of repressed wages and weak aggregate demand. So, you know, this is the these are the pre-existing conditions I think have been exposed and exaggerated by COVID-19. So any strategy, at least as we understand it, that does recover better or builds back better in the language of the day hasn't only to deal with the immediate consequences of COVID-19, but if it's going to be effective, has to at the same time deal with these uh, pre-existing problems that that, that survived beyond uh, 29, 2010. So, so when we look at the kind of measures that we think are necessary, particularly in the developed world, and, but also in the developing world, and that distinction obviously we're going to have to talk about because there are obvious differences between uh, developed and developing countries, and, and developing countries are a particular concern of UNCTAD, uh, obviously. But, you know, so 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 we we do believe very strongly that that macroeconomic policy has a an active macroeconomic policy has a critical role in terms of responding to the current situation and and as we've argued before you know a much more prolonged uh, fiscal expansion to complement uh, 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 unorthodox monetary policy has to be uh, part of the uh, of the policy package, with a very strong emphasis on employment creation uh, and and repairing social services. We talk a lot in the report about the need to strengthen the care economy as a central component of that, and that's I guess obvious in the context of the health pandemic health pandemic we're gr- uh, growing through. Um, a particular emphasis, I think, on on public investment infrastructure uh, repairing in the case of uh, advanced economies uh, infrastructure that has been degraded over over decades but also and arguably more importantly this need to uh, use public uh, investment to shift the uh, energy mix away from uh, carbon uh, fuels to to renewables of, of one kind of one kind or another um, so I mean that's I think most people in one way or another would that's a fairly familiar set of policies. People argue about the, the dimensions, but I think anyone in the progressive uh, uh, tradition would be would be pushing that. We 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 want to go beyond that by insisting, for example, that you can't do the kinds of transition that we're talking about and, and build resilience without seeing some fairly significant structural changes in the economy. You need industrial policy to rate productivity has been sluggish across the western world for for some time now and and you're going to need industrial policy uh, to be able to uh, make the necessary shifts into into higher productivity sectors and and and, and to boost skills in in those sectors so we make a we make a big pitch for industrial policy as part of a kind of just and green uh, transition obviously a very strong pitch for the need for progressive tax reforms, um, not only of high wealth individuals, but also of, of, of corporations, you know, moving away from indirect taxes, which tend to be highly regressive uh, towards direct taxation of, of, of those that are in a position to be able to, 
to pay and should be should be paying. Um, so so you know this this com- and then and then I think critically for us. Uh, regulation of the financial sector. You know, we've constantly made the argument that you can't have a progressive economic policy in a world where footloose capital is able to dictate the kind of pace and policy of, of, of economic change. And so the need for uh, uh, regulation cutting down not only on not only dealing with banks in a more effective way than was done after 2009, but in particular of, of the shadow banking sector of, that has mushroomed uh, in, over the course of the of the last decade. Private equity, insurance companies, uh, etc. So, so it's that combination of reflation, uh, redistribution, regulation that we associate with the new deal and we think needs to be revived and 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 stoked in 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 response to covid-19 with a particular focus on addressing these pre-existing conditions that 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 are holding back uh, a more inclusive and sustainable future one of the recommendations you make is i've been told something that the corporate elite the finance sector uh is wildly opposed to uh, uh, and that's a wealth tax. You write, in light of the further increase in inequality resulting from the crisis, the case for a wealth tax seems irrefutable. Uh, I once asked uh, a friend uh, who who knows a lot of the Wall Street people how what what they thought of Sanders and Warren, and they and I said if they had to choose between a Warren or Sanders and a Trumpist kind of authoritarianism, uh, if even some people use the word fascism, what would they choose? And he says, well, if Warren and Sanders are serious about a wealth tax, uh, they choose a Trump or a Trump type. Uh, the the wealth tax, though, is, isn't it kind of the only way to get at the serious money? So you guys must have talked about whether to include this or not and concluded you, di- you would. Uh, so what was your thinking on the issue of that a wealth tax seems irrefutable? Um, I mean, when we talk inequality, I mean, we – I mean uh, – you know, obviously, people talk about the one percent versus the ninety-nine percent, and there's usually it's usually a focus on on household incomes, and and we know the we know the shifts that have taken place um, uh, in that area over the last three or four decades. Although not so not so much over the last couple of decades, income inequality has not really been. I mean, the the real shifts in income inequality occurred in the eighties and the nineties in most advanced economies uh, we we usually pad that out with a discussion of functional income and the shift and the relationship between wages and profits which most you know conventional economics and most conventional policymakers tend to ignore all although that's you know you can see there's been a relentless decline in the wage share uh, uh, in most advanced economies, not all, but most advanced economies, um, uh, that is quite significant over the last three or four decades. So, so that which is why we think you know a focus on wages and how to strengthen uh, wages is particularly important when it comes to the, the redistribution story. But you know, 
at the same time, we've had these in um, because of the nature of the of of twenty first century capitalism, which is which is driven by um, uh, incessant financial deal making and asset price rises. You know, the, the degrees of wealth inequality now have have, have just become uh, obscene to a point that we haven't really seen. Probably in certainly in the last in the post-war era, and arguably some people would argue even before that. And so tackling that problem seems to us to just be an obvious and an obvious part of the of the of the economics of inequality. But you know, it goes back also to the point that you made about this this kind of vicious circle between economic power and wealth and political power and influence. And you know, it's we. There's a term that, funnily enough, a Chicago economist, uh, Zingales, coined, which I we do like, which is to refer to this relationship, this incestuous relationship between economic and political power, as a Medici vicious circle, kind of, you know, conjuring up the images of 15th, 16th century uh, Florence and and the and the Italian Renaissance. And so, so this accumulation of wealth, of of of, of assets and rising asset prices, like you know, which lies behind that, you know, it seems to be intimately connected with the ability to capture political power and, and the idea that of, of the of the of Zingales, a Chicago-based economist, of a Medici vicious circle, kind of drawing on the on the on the Florentine state of the 15th, 14th, 15th century, where you had this kind of powerful interlocking of, of economic and financial wealth, seems to describe very closely the uh, the, the 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 state of affairs in the. Uh, in the 21st century, and, and and we know this, you know. I mean, your colleagues like Tom Ferguson have have shown the extent to which politics have been and policy making has been captured by small elites in the in in certainly in the United States. I think I think it applies beyond the United States too. So so I think tackling that, tackling the the not just the the economic side of it, but the political side of that. Uh, uh, inequality story strikes us as being central to rebalancing the uh, the the body politic and and being able to forge a more kind of inclusive and sustainable future so in that context how you deal with this massive accumulation of wealth and how you begin to tackle that is we we think is central to the to the story and you, and we can see it in the pandemic i think i think the recent figure for the growth the growing wealth of 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 the of us billionaires since covid 19 hit is something like 840 billion i think was a, a figure i saw from the institute for policy studies uh, you know in a time when e- economies are collapsing these people's wealth has mushroomed uh, you know and it's it's based upon as we know the the the, the ability of um, you know asset prices to sustain themselves during this crisis yeah i think there used to be as the american state and you know, post world war 2 european states emerged uh, and matured and i guess you could say fdr in the 30s was even the best representative about of of what i'm about to say in the united states that the role of government 
and the state is to look after the longer term systemic interests of capitalism and the capitalist class and the elites. I mean, which means there has to be some compromise with working people uh, for the sake of the system. And FDR's New Deal clearly was he didn't want the United States to gravitate towards socialism. Uh, the Soviet Union, for better or worse, looked like it had full employment and 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 so on. So there was pressure uh, that I not to go towards fascism, there had to be a kind of new deal. Uh, but that idea that the state and government looked after the longer term class interests of the elites seemed to get more and more eroded post-World War II uh, to the point where it's uh, as you get into the 1990s, uh, it's like considered, I think, naive that 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 the finance, the the corporate sector, and thus their political representatives should be anything worried about anything other than the short term return for finance and the corporate sector. And, and I, I don't think we should even talk about these two things as separate in the sense that if you look at who owns the corporate sector, it's mostly financial institutions and in, in almost every case, financial institutions uh either directly own or through asset managers like BlackRock indirectly own, but do control the shares of all the big uh, publicly owned companies. Uh, so uh, this really, this I don't, I don't even think you can talk about a, a separate corporate and finance sector anymore. But my main point is like Trump is like the culmination of this, the, the most banal, self-serving, narrow self-interest in the state itself. To forget the state playing the role of uh, government, you know, doing what's good for the system. There's always been that argument in, you know, progressive forces that there is, there's a, there's a conflict between kind of industrial capitalist interests and financial capitalist interests, right? That's a long, there's a long-standing debate about that. And, and I think that's probably true still in many developing countries too, uh, uh, you know, that potential conflict between industrial capital and finance capital. And I think you're right, though. In the, I mean, one of the features of this financialization process has been the, the much greater coincidence of interest between what we think of as, as of the financial sector and, you know, in, industrial capital of, uh, in, its, in its modern forms. And part of that is the kind of crisscrossing of ownership that, uh, that, that, you've, that you've described, but also the evolution of, you know, industrial capital in which things like, you know, brands and monopoly positions, intellectual property rights have become the basis on which profit making is made in pharmaceutical sectors, in 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 um, audiovisual, you know. The, so so there's been. The, I think I think it's true that uh, the the interests between industrial and finance capital have become much more intertwined in the advanced economies under this world of hyperglobalization. Although I think it's probably less true in much of the in in much of the developing world. So if the state governments in most of the advanced capitalist countries and certainly most exaggerated in the United States is such that you, it's not just that you, it's hard to tell the difference between corporate and financial interest, uh, it's hard to find uh, some space between corporate slash financial interest and the government anymore. Uh, I mean, I, I, it's not like politics in the United States was ever for a single day not dominated by uh, the, the interests of the elites. 
But as the state matured, and particularly under FDR, there was a role carved out for the state to make sure the system uh, survived. And, and, and one of the threats to the system was a grossly exaggerated inequality. And FDR, uh, with the New Deal, tried to address that. Um, that. But to a large extent, that that kind of consciousness seems to be so subordinate in the elites, it's practically marginal. Um, and so when you talk about what kind of reforms are possible in, in terms of what you've proposed, um, how do you see that kind of playing out where the, where do you see signs even amongst the elites themselves that they actually need a state? And I'm talking, I think more about the United States because I think in, at least in some countries of Europe, maybe they get it a little more. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's an illusion. I don't know. But that there needs to be, the government needs to play a kind of modifying role and, and not just be there to serve, uh, you know, a banquet uh, to finance. I, I mean, I think that's, you know, in that sense, I think that that is the greatest challenge, right, in, in terms of whether, how, how, how it's possible to forge progressive, progressive alliances that can push this kind of agenda against what appears to be such a, concentra- a concentrated degree of, of, of economic wealth and, and political power. Um, yeah, and, and there is obviously a difference. I mean, when you look at the, and you probably know this much better than I do, Paul, but, you know, you look at the New Deal, the people in the New Deal, I mean, it included people like Marion Eccles, right, who was a, who was himself a kind of banker. I mean, I mean Roosevelt himself or, and Morgan Thau is, is Treasury Secretary came from that patrician class of of, of uh, 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 upstate New York or right? wherever they were. So I mean, and that you don't really see many of those types around today. I think that's that's certainly the case. But but there is you know there's gr- there's clearly a growing opposition within within uh, the elite to the concentration of power, for example, in digital corporations. So digi- the digital, these, these digital giants have, been, have kind of shifted from being paragons of virtue and, and, uh, and, and bount- a bountiful future to being problems, right? So you'll get something like the Financial Times as a, to some extent, a mouthpiece of 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 of, of uh, the establishment, you know, worrying extensively about this this concentration of power in in, in the in, in the digital platforms, um, and 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 you can see that that that's become a bit, you know, in the United States, this issue of the concentration of power has clearly become a cross party. Issue. You got people like Rubio, right? You know, worrying about about the you know about these kinds of issues. So, so I mean, there is this. There are clearly signs that the uh, uh, within the establishment that things have gone things have gone too far. Let me just add to what I said, which is the, the, the big problem right now is what the hell's the alternative? Because when you add, you know, you put in the time frame of the climate crisis, there is just no sign of a kind of really conscious, progressive national people's movement in any country I look at 
that can actually get positioned to actually get elected and and run one of the major countries or minor countries for that matter. Like if if some of these kinds of people in the elites don't emerge who get the gravity of the crisis uh, in, a, in a Rooseveltian way. I know they're only going to do it to save capitalism, but if they can deal with the climate crisis, hoping to save capitalism along the way, well, then, you know, good, good on them. Uh, but I, I think, the, the, and this is the conundrum, I think the factors, let me back up a step. We, we, we're all in mixed economies here, all the major capitalist countries, and maybe every country in the world more or less is a mixed economy, even Cuba these days. Um, you know, you have socialistic aspects of the economy and capitalistic private aspects. And, and in, in most countries, the private capitalists are, are certainly dominant. And, and I would, in China, maybe it's a little... Uh, different and, and it's somewhat unique and more complicated China. But my point is in, in, in the United States and all the other Western capitalist countries, I don't see how you deal with the climate crisis without an enormous strengthening of the socialistic characteristics of the economy which will necessarily include some kind of democratization and people's movement and or some sections of the elites that get that that's the only way out of this. And, and Roosevelt, like, who, like I said, was out to save capitalism, talked about the importance of public ownership, that when, when a sector of the economy is vital and the private interests that are uh, operating in that sector uh, either can't make it affordable or can't run it properly or kind of blackmail the society uh, with it, then they should be uh, nationalized. They should be made, they should be publicly owned. And one of the critiques of the UNTAG report, your report, is that you don't raise that uh, in this report. Um, and, and let me just read you a, a guy who, you know, he writes about, uh, cr critically of UNCTAD, a guy named Michael Roberts, who used to work in finance, I think, in London. And he wrote, UNCTAD, UNCTAD's structural policies boil down to more regulation of monopolies and banks, not taking them over. And he says, uh, UNCTAD presents a whole range of green measures to curb and control global warming, but there's no call for public ownership of the fossil fuel industries and they're phasing out. So, so my question, doesn't this issue of, of public ownership need to be raised as, a, as, as in the way Roosevelt raised it? I mean, even within the capitalist framework, and I would just add to that, there's just no way to counter the power of the big financial institutions Without some, I don't think it can be done through regulation. They just don't allow it to happen. So you, you wind up needing uh, public banking on a scale that breaks the blackmail, and and also on this issue of fossil fuel. I don't know how you phase out fossil fuel if you don't seriously weaken them, uh, which is essentially buy them. I think these are the big questions. But um, just step back a bit, though. I mean, it's interesting that you would use the term mixed econ mixed economy. I mean, you know, when I was Growing up a long time ago, but in you know it, in the in the 70s, the use of the term mixed economy was prevalent everywhere. Right, most most people would be comfortable referring to advanced capitalist economies as mixed economies. I, the, the term mixed economy has essentially disappeared from the lexicon of discussions about uh, modern economies. They, people don't use that term 
anymore. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so we've moved away, I think, from that kind of Rooseveltian idea. And Roosevelt, I don't think the U.S., although it was part of the discussion in the U.S., there was very little public ownership, right, in, 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 the, in the New Deal agenda in the way that we had in the United Kingdom with the, with, with the nationalization of the utilities and the coal mines, et cetera. Yeah, no, there was, it, it was nothing comparable to the U.K., but, uh, and I'm no expert on this, but there was a fight over the electrical sector and that the electrical companies were monopolizing things and they were, uh, you know, extorting very high f- uh, fees for electricity and so on. So Roosevelt really started pushing public ownership. And I think the Hoover Dam was an example of it. Never on the scale of the UK or, or even Canada, for that matter. I, I think it's true that Hoover used those kinds of ideas that were part of the New Deal in uh, the discussion in the run up to the election of 32 to brandish Roosevelt as a closet Bolshevik, right, which you hear in the in election discussions uh, to this day. But I mean, as part, it was not central to the U.S. New Deal. I, I mean, I don't think. But it's. But I. I still think it's true that the regulatory, the regulatory changes and the strengthening of organized labor, which were clearly central to the uh, to, to Roosevelt's New Deal, did shift the economic structures towards this idea of a mixed economy, um, absent the the role of public ownership. I mean, it's not that public ownership was a great success in the United Kingdom, as we know. Um, Now, that's not to say that I, I, I do think ownership questions are critical. I do think there's a, a very strong case to be made for public ownership, and particularly uh, public ownership of of um, the financial of large parts of the financial sector. You know, if you think of finance as a utility, as some people do, then the best way to deal with that, I think, is through public uh, ownership. I mean, and the central, after all, of course, central banks remain either directly or indirectly public institutions, right? I think part of the problem is that they've been captured by financial interests as, you know, other parts of the of the state structures have have, have been captured by by private interests in, in, in various ways. So but you know it's but I still think it, and so, so there's a discussion to be had. There's a discussion, a very important discussion to be had about non-state forms of progressive ownership, the use of cooperatives, and again, something we've talked about in previous reports, as being an alternative form of, of, of organizing uh, production that I think should be in the mix of discussions uh, of, of uh, structural reforms. Um, so I, I don't think we rule those, I don't think we rule those out of the, of the discussion, I think you have to have a serious discussion about the ways in which publicly owned enterprises have, you know, uh, not been very successful in terms of delivering the services or indeed the product that they are that in the sectors that they the public ownership takes hold. So, I mean, I think there's a serious discussion to be had there, but I don't think we rule out ownership, uh, public ownership, as as part of a progressive strategy. I just think it should be. It should be nestled in ultimately with with issues around redistribution and regulation, where I suspect, at least in the current context, it's probably easier to get traction uh, uh, in the Western world than, than discussing those issues. But, you know, I mean, you know, 
there are these issues of sovereign wealth funds, right? Uh, people like Yanis Varoufakis have got have put forward, you know, serious ideas about the way in which you can uh, shift ownership patterns by by using a certain amount of uh, profits to be channeled into uh, certain types of ownership schemes. Uh, these are these should be part of the discussion. I don't, I don't think there's any doubt about that. You talk about a Marshall Plan for global health recovery. What what? What would that look like? Yeah, I mean, this is where we begin to shift away from issues or the kind of strategies of advanced economies to the particular problems of developing countries. I mean, we would argue that, you know, and, and we are strong advocates of a of a Green New Deal type strategy to address the problems around economic injustice and environmental breakdown. So, So we are we, you know, that's a that's a strategy that we would want to to push and promote, um, and and the policy ingredients of the Green New Deal, I think, are are what I've said. You know, expansionary macroeconomic policy, uh, strong use of public investment, use of of, of public banks, uh, progressive taxation, industrial policy. I don't, there's no, you know, the, the 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 ingredients of the of a Green New Deal. I think policy ingredients, at least, are, are pretty much the same. I mean, the problem for developing countries is that they have these um, long-standing and yet and, and unresolved uh, development problems that that you know most developed countries don't no longer face. Right, problems of the informality of their of their workforce, lack of diversification of their economies, extreme vulnerability to external shocks, whether natural or or, or financial. Um, and and you know, this this puts developing countries in a particular difficult position uh, when it comes to designing the kinds of policies that can address economic and environmental cha- combined economic and environmental challenges. And and so you know we've I mean UNCTAD was set up on the grounds that these countries require supportive international. Uh, action, financial, technological, uh, technical uh, 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 support, if they are going to be able to kind of put together the policy packages that can can deliver on on these various economic, social, environmental fronts. So, so, and that remains as true today as it did back in 1964 when. UNCTAD was established when the world economy was less financialized, where, you know, they were much more dependent on commodities, which were highly rigged markets in favor of advanced economies, uh, etc. And we we would argue that, you know, financialization has made the lives of many developing countries all the more difficult, piling up of debt, uh, particularly short-term debt, um, uh, vulnerability to financial shocks of one kind or another, capital flight, uh, major gyrations in their exchange rates, etc. So, so you know, in that, in the world that we see now, we 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 believe that the multilateral system that has evolved post 1980 has essentially evolved against the interests of most, not all, of course, and there are some obvious exceptions, but most uh, developing countries. So the so. So when it comes to responding to the the COVID nineteen shock, where 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 the health shock has been compounded by, you know, a very predictable set of economic shocks uh, that we saw hit developing countries, particularly immediately after the pandemic pandemic began in March and April, uh, the the multilateral uh, system, particularly the multilateral financial institutions, have failed 
um, abysmally to provide the kind of support that people like Roosevelt and Keynes and, and Harry Dexter White thought that the multilaterals that they were putting into place 75 years ago would be, uh, would be designed to, to do. Right. So, so, you know, we've seen, even though developing countries are facing these huge debt problems, many of them uh, uh, at the moment, the kinds of things that have been offered by the G20 and the IMF and World Bank are, are you know, just uh, insignificant compared with the financial stresses that, that many of these countries are now facing. So, so we then go back, you know, as we've done with the New Deal, to to the kinds of thinking that was present back in the in the late forties about how you can provide finance to build back better uh, uh, for for countries under. Under serious financial difficulties, and the classic case there is the Marshall Plan, of course, but aimed differently than because it was aimed at, at other advanced economies. But on the scale, I mean, in the case of the Marshall Plan, the original Marshall Plan, uh, something like one percent of U.S. GDP was channeled to Europe between 1940 on an annual basis between 1948 and 1952 that put these countries back on their feet. You know, when we when we wind the clock forward 75 years, developed countries who have promised to give developing countries 0.7% of their GDP in the form of overseas development assistance for decades have never been able to push that figure above 0.3% on average. There are exceptions. The Scandinavian countries and stuff have done have tended to meet that target. So so we need to see a, a multilateral system that delivers on the promises on which it was set up, which is to provide predictable, stable, cheap, long-term finances, possibly in the form of grants, to developing countries, particularly in the face of the kind of severe shock that they are now facing as a consequence, not only of the health pandemic, but of the response of the advanced economies through lockdown to, you know, closing down export markets, stopping remittances, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, so the idea of a global Marshall Plan really kind of goes back to that original intent of the multilateral system and tries to link it to the particular challenges facing developing countries today. And the argument for doing it is the same argument uh, post-World War II, which was that actually reviving the global economy is good for all countries on the globe, in, in, including the United States. Although given the nationalist fervor, not just from the Trump side, but even Biden pushing you know, everything by American, that's going to be his big campaign promise. Uh, it, it seems to be going the other way. Um, let, let me end by ask, asking you, maybe the biggest question in some ways. Uh, the, the, throughout the report, there are reference, references that whatever policy and reform one's talking about, it needs to take into account and be connected to policies that deal with the climate crisis. And there seems like there's this you know, pretty awful paradox here. I, I, when you look at anything possible through market mechanisms, uh, and most government policy these days, uh, even the recommendations of uh, the Biden ca campaign on climate, uh, rely on either carbon capture and market mechanisms, you know, either whether it's a uh, tax on carbon or uh, a trade, uh, I'm sorry, cap and trade policies and such. Uh, whereas 
the nece- the need if if one's going to meet any of the benchmarks sent by set by scientists of not crossing 1.5 degrees global warming which now i don't think there's much doubt we're going to cross but certainly not hitting two although uh, the course we're on, I don't know how we don't hit to. Uh, all that being said, there needs to be serious government intervention, serious regulations, serious government investment in infra- green infrastructure, and dealing with phasing out fossil fuel, not just carbon capture, which seems so un- you know untested. Which leads to all you know very socialistic policies. Uh, as we go back to this mixed economy uh, discussion, um, it, it, it means greatly shifting the balance from uh, you know the private sector to- sowing control to a far more socialized economy, which you know to quote Bernie Sanders requires some kind of political revolution. Uh, how do you, how do you see this playing out? Because we don't have much time. You know the the language of the mixed economy, right back back after the end after the Second World War was not a language of socialism, right? Really, it was in, in the way you described it. Um, but but given the extreme shift in most advanced economies to this kind of adulation and infatuation with markets, that anything that involves the state. Uh, coming back in, which is, you're right, everything we say involves the state coming back in, in a significant way, that's absolutely inevitable, is somehow immediately deemed um, uh, socialistic. So, I mean, yeah, that's that's a reflection of the, uh, a, sad, a sad reflection of the way in which advanced capitalist economies have evolved, I think, over the last four decades of kind of neoliberal uh, uh, thinking. Um, we, we make the argument that a kind of shift to public investment of two to three, arguably, I would argue more, 4% a year uh, over the next decade is the minimum that we need to be able to shift certainly the energy mix to meet the kinds of targets that have been set by by Paris. And and we don't believe that private finance can do that job. There's no evidence that we see. this. And within my world of, of multilateral institutions, the whole language is about how you uh, get private finance to deliver on these public goods. I mean, the climate being the most pressing one, but, but other public goods, including public services as well. And, and there's just no evidence to, to, to back this, 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 this kind of story up. And the various attempts to do it through public-private partnerships and, and blended finance techniques, uh, you know, in many respects, make the situation worse uh, rather than better. Um, so, so the big challenge then is, well, how can you finance Big public in a big public investment push of the kind that we are talking about, and and to some extent, you know, there's a feeling that that you know, it always the you know the the argument, you know, we heard it immediately after the financial great financial crisis. You know, where's the money? There's just the, the governments don't have the money for this kind of stuff, and and to some extent, our friends in the mo- the modern monetary theory tradition have, have have begun to erode that kind of logic and certainly the behavior of governments in response to the COVID-19 as as before uh, in response to the global financial crisis have to some extent undermined that idea that governments don't have access to money. But, you know, you you look at also others. I mean, if, if the United States, in a funny way, all you're arguing for is a return to the tax 
structure in the United States that Richard Nixon was comfortable with, right? If you went to back, if you simply went back to the that kind of tax structure, you would generate trillions of dollars, additional dollars uh, available for government spending. And then you go into these issues of of uh, subsidy. You mentioned them yourself. You know, subsidies for fuel subsidies. The IMF estimates that the fossil fuel subsidies uh, around the world can be upwards of half a trillion. Uh, half a trillion dollars, huge subsidies to agricultural sector, which itself is a major contributor to to um, uh, uh, warming temperatures. And you know, so it, it does require governments to roll, not to to to, to essentially uh, recapture some of the resources that we would see are being wasted in this highly financialized, highly unequal, highly concentrated world. Uh, uh, to be able to fund the kind of transition, uh, public investments, retraining, uh, etc., that we think are the basis of a genuine Green New Deal. And to do that at the global level would also mean ensuring that uh, resources of a similar nature were being made available to developing countries as well. And, and you know, a lot of what we say when we look at the numbers are based upon um, uh, experiences in countries in the not too distant past, right? I mean, the kind of investment push that we've modelled in some of our work is 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 based upon uh, you know numbers from the uh, 1990s. So it's it's not like it's not like it's this kind of impossible dream that we're talking about. It's one that we think is based upon reasonably sensible, realistic parameters that we have seen in our own lifetimes. Uh, Thanks very much for joining us, Richard. Thanks for having me, Paul. Pleasure. And thank you for joining us on the Analysis.News podcast. And again, please don't forget at the top of the webpage, there's a donate button if you like what we do. And if you've already donated, thanks very much.